Welcome to the Just Ingredients Podcast. I'm Cara Lynn, and here we talk all things nourishing to the mind, body, and soul. This is a place where you can find just good ingredients to life. If you sometimes lack the energy and motivation to get into the gym, are hitting the snooze button instead of that morning high fitness class, or are just not feeling like you're giving 100% during your workout, Just Ingredients Stim-Free Pre-Workout is for you. Made without caffeine, Just Ingredients Stim-Free is a 100% natural pre-workout drink that increases energy, improves mood, sharpens mental focus, increases strength and endurance, and reduces fatigue. It's launching on January 26. You can get it on sale for 20% off. Just Ingredients is committed to its ingredients and only uses the highest quality natural ingredients that come from the earth. Just Ingredients pre-workout is naturally sweetened and flavored with real foods and contains no artificial dyes, chemicals, or sugar alcohols. So if you want some help getting a boost for your workouts, don't miss the launch of Just Ingredients Stim-Free Pre-Workout for 20% off on January 26th and 27th. Once again, get 20% off Just Ingredients Stim-Free Pre-Workout on January 26th and 27th. Dr. David Jockers is a doctor of natural medicine and runs one of the most popular natural health websites on drjockers.com, which has gotten over 1 million monthly visitors, and his work has been seen on popular media such as The Dr. Oz Show and Hallmark Home and Family. Dr. Jockers is the author of the best-selling book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough by Victory Belt Publishing and The Fasting Transformation. He is a world-renowned expert in the area of ketosis, fasting, brain health, inflammation, and functional nutrition. He is also the host of the popular Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast. Dr. Jockers lives in Canton, Georgia with his wife, Angel, and his twin boys, David and Joshua, and his daughters, Joyful and Shine. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, I am really honored to have Dr. Jockers here on the show with us today. I have followed him on social media for a few years, have learned so much from him. I think he is just a huge wealth of knowledge. And so I feel really privileged and honored to have him here on the show today. So thank you, Dr. Jockers, for being here. Thank you, Carolyn. It's an honor and uh, just really appreciate everything that you're doing. Well, thank you. Will you tell my listeners just a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in uh, medicine, things like that? Yeah, I'm a doctor of natural medicine. I've got a popular website, drjockers.com. And really the way that I got into this was growing up, my my mom actually was studying to become a naturopath. But uh, as kids, we really rebelled against um, a lot of what she taught. And uh, for me, I was always into sports. I was an athlete growing up. And so that's how she appealed to me when it came to my nutrition. I would ask, why do I need to eat this kale or whatever it is that she made? And uh, she would say, you know, that's going to help you have more energy. That's going to help you recover from, you know, such and such injury or whatever it was. And uh, that that really spoke to me. I, I realized, hey, the, the food that I eat can actually make an impact in how I felt and my energy and my brain function, how I performed on a day-to-day basis. And so later I became a personal trainer in my early 20s. And I was eating six, seven meals a day, you know, had to have a protein shake before I went to bed, big breakfast in the morning. Um, cause I thought I needed that in order to maintain my, my body weight. I've always been very thin and, uh, I was trying to bulk up 
And all of that, you know, doing that for years just really, you know, just just really wiped out my digestive system. And then I eventually developed irritable bowel syndrome. And I actually lost weight. I lost about 30 pounds, even though I was still trying to eat a lot and and lift weights. Um, I couldn't keep weight on because I couldn't absorb nutrients anymore. Mm. And so I went from, I also had high, uh, orthostatic hypotension where I go from sitting to standing and I would be extremely dizzy, right? I had a constant brain fog, fatigue. And I realized I, ha- I needed to make changes in my nutrition. And so, and I was, I was actually at that time living healthier than anybody that I knew, you know, I was eating whole grains. I was uh, doing what everybody thought or mo- what most people thought was really healthy back in what, 2002, 2003, somewhere in that time frame, And uh, that's when I actually came across Dr. Joe Mercola. And so if somebody's been in natural health for a while, they probably heard of Dr. Mercola. This is early on with his website, but he started talking about this no grain diet. And I was actually a lacto ovo vegetarian. So I thought that eating red meat was bad back then. And he started talking about how really we need to be focusing on red meat and we need to be focusing on wild caught fish and pasture raised eggs and things like that. And we need to avoid the grains and how inflammatory and insulting they are to our gut. So I was like, well, what I'm doing now isn't working. So I might as well try this out. And that's what I did. And I felt significantly better and uh, it stabilized my blood sugar. I felt like I had all you know energy all day. I started gaining the weight back. And I actually felt really, really satiated. And I actually started graduate school to become a chiropractor. And part of that was inf- was influenced and inspired by uh, Dr. Mercola. And I was taking 7 a.m. classes. I had a really, really busy schedule. And I wanted to work out in the morning before class and this and that. And I, I didn't have time to actually prepare a meal. And I wasn't hungry. So I would just drink water early. You know, I just drink a ton of water early on. I would go to my classes and I felt amazing. And it was like... I always thought I had to eat this big breakfast, but I realized I actually felt better when I wasn't eating and when I was hydrating throughout the morning. And I would do this until I eventually got hungry, which was usually one, two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And then I would eat in in a condensed eating window between, let's say, two o'clock and eight o'clock. And um, I, I gained my weight back. I felt better and stronger in the gym than ever before. I had never heard the term intermittent fasting that's actually what I was doing. This is back in 2005, 2006. And um, I just felt significantly better doing this. It wasn't until years later that I found the term intermittent fasting. And I realized, wow, that actually really helped transform my life. And uh, you know, there was no terms like paleo diet or ketogenic diet back then. And so we actually just called it the cellular healing diet. And some mm-hmm. of my functional nutrition mentors back in those days while I was in graduate school, they they had a similar nutrition style um, where it was take out the grains, take out processed seed oils, uh, focus on grass-fed meats. And we called it the cellular healing diet. We called it the healing diet that we would put people on. And uh, so this is when I started my practice back in 2009, um, I was teaching people the healing diet. And I, again, I didn't even know the term intermittent fasting and it was just like, okay, this is what you want to do. You want to eat, you know, two to three meals a day. You want to do it like this eating, you know, really focusing on these grass fed wild caught animal products, um, taking out the grains, really trying to go organic as much as possible. And then later, you know, we found terms like intermittent fasting, uh, ketogenic diet, uh, and different things like that. And I just got really, really passionate about educating people 
And I started that in my community. I would do workshops all the time. I would speak at churches, speak at, I would do shopping tours, take people around my local health food store, showing them foods to eat and things like that. And I started creating a lot of online content as well. Um, and I, at first I was doing it for other websites and then it really took off with, uh, with a couple of the websites I was, I was working with and I was getting tons and tons of calls and emails into my clinic for people that found me through other websites as a guest author and they wanted to work with me. They wanted to do long distance consulting and this and that. And I, I really realized the power of the internet. And so I created my own website. I, I hired somebody to teach me how to use WordPress. I hired a graphic designer and we started creating our own content. And uh, that really eventually took on a life of its own. I eventually sold my health center. And uh, now I just do this full time creating online health content. And I've got a popular podcast and a popular website. And I've just been really passionate about, I love looking at research um, and looking at really things that are working in people's lives. Um, I love biohacking. You know, I love kind of putting all of that together and creating the world's best natural health content. And that's what we do at drjockers.com. I love it. I love that you are just have devoted your life, I should say, to educating others, trying to help people heal, things like that. And I love that you called it the healing diet. Yeah, healing diet or the cellular healing diet. One of my early mentors was Dr. Dan Pompa, who's also a bigger name in the natural health world. And uh, I met him like right after he had his pain to purpose story where he had severe mercury toxicity and and uh, he was living in a moldy home and he had had some severe health issues and he had recovered from that using functional medicine and functional nutrition. And he started teaching a group of doctors and I was connected with that group of doctors and um, my best friend and I went through his courses and programs while we were in graduate school. And yeah, he was teaching this idea of the healing diet, which was very similar to the no grain diet that um, Paul Check and Dr. Mercola were teaching. And so they were some of the earliest pioneers in what I guess later became the paleo diet. Oh, okay. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Pompa is a great resource as well. Just so many amazing resources and his story I love. So yeah. Okay, so I have a lot of topics I want to ask you about today. I want to talk to you about inflammation and blood sugar levels and intermittent fasting, hormones, all sorts of things. So let's first start with inflammation. Will you just tell my listeners the basics of inflammation? Like what is inflammation? Because it's a word we're hearing a lot in the health world these days. Yeah, so inflammation is an immune reaction and it's really a survival reaction that your body has. And it's part of the healing process. So whenever you get, for example, like say you sprain your ankle or something like that, there are all these, you know, basically you've got tissue damage there. And so there's different compounds that are released from your tissue that when your innate intelligence senses in the bloodstream that there's damaged tissue, it immediately drives up this inflammatory reaction to help break down that damaged tissue to protect that area from any sort of pathogenic uh, bacteria or pathogenic microorganisms from invading it. And then that's really kind of the initial part of the repair process. And you see our ancestors, when they would have a tissue wound, right? Like a sprained ankle or something along those lines, oftentimes there would be a skin wound as well. And so bacteria from the outside now could get into the bloodstream 
and get into the bloodstream and go you know, all over the place, right? And eat tissue. And bacteria, their main job is to break down decaying matter, right? That's really what they do. Our job, right, um, as a vitalistic human being, right, as, a, as an, a living being is to not be decaying matter. And so for our ancestors, more of them died from things like systemic infections than anything else. What that means is they would have a, a flesh wound, right? Let's say they were going out for a hunt, or maybe they were even in a fight with somebody and they would get a wound from that fight. And then bacteria or other pathogens would get into the bloodstream. They would spread into the lungs, give them pneumonia or spread into uh, the brain and give them encephalitis or into the nervous system and, and cause meningitis. And they would die from that, right? Those are life-threatening diseases. And so our body has adapted to create this inflammatory reaction. And inflammation is basically our body's way of protecting against any of these systemic, chronic systemic life-threatening infections. And so we know we can live a long time with inflammation, but we can't live a long time with these sort of systemic or you know high-level uh, infections. And so inflammation, again, is, is the antidote. Uh, to these sort of infections. Now, the way that our body, the way that our innate intelligence responds is when, whenever we are, whenever we have any sort of um, bacteria in our bloodstream or endotoxins for, in our bloodstream, and these endotoxins can just be debris from the bacteria, it's going to drive up inflammation. Also, whenever we have um, damaged tissue, right? So we have a whole lot of damaged cell membranes, things like that in our bloodstream, then we drive up inflammation in our system. And so the, the main culprit in our society today actually comes from our gut. See, our gut lining is only one cell wall. So it's one cell connected all the way across, particularly in our small intestine. Our large intestine has several cells. But in our small intestine, that's where we get the most amount of nutrient absorption. So it's built to prioritize nutrient absorption. So it's only one cell. So it makes it easy for nutrients to pass into the little pockets in the intestines, the little villi, and they get into the bloodstream so we can absorb the nutrients effectively. And that's because our ancestors had a lot of times of famine. There were a lot of times where food wasn't abundant. So when they did get anything to eat, they needed to prioritize nutrient absorption. And that's the way our systems were built. In today's society, we have food all around us, right? We have an abundant amount of food. I've got enough food, you know, between my pantry and my my two refrigerators and freezer to probably last my family a month. And, you know, that's a good thing. However, we have to actually intentionally not be continually consuming food because when we do, we create a mechanical stress that damages the gut. So if we're constantly eating like I was growing up, six meals a day, seven meals a day, we're putting so much mechanical stress on that gut lining. We're also eating a lot of foods that have different compounds, for example, like gluten that stimulate different things like zonulin, this protein that creates um, permeability, right? Or opens up the lining of the intestines, or we're consuming things with pesticides and herbicides that create inflammation in the gut, or we're eating too quickly, right? And when we eat too quickly, we don't produce enough digestive juices like stomach acid, bile, and pancreatic enzymes in order to break down that food. So now the food gets into the intestines, undigested, puts a lot of wear and tear on that gut lining, rips that gut lining open, and we call that intestinal permeability or leaky gut. And now bacteria and bacterial debris 
from the intestines now seep into that bloodstream. And again, the our innate intelligence says, wow, there's a lot of bacteria. There's a lot of bacterial debris in here. We're at a risk. We're at risk for some sort of infection killing us quickly. So we need to drive up inflammation. So that's one of the main culprits of inflammation. Also, if we're under emotional stress, you know, our ancestors, when they were under a lot of emotional stress, it meant that a flesh wound was highly likely, right? And so the body will start to create more inflammation if we're under a lot of mental, emotional stress to try to prepare our body. So leaky gut, mental, emotional stress, if we're, if we're exposed to a lot of different toxins, those things can, can certainly drive up inflammation in our system as well. So inflammation isn't necessarily, you know, it's, it's a survival mechanism. The problem is when inflammation is going on too long, and that's what happens when we have leaky gut or we have kind of a continual exposure to toxins or a continual exposure to mental, emotional stressors, these things should all be short-term, not long-term in our society. They're, they're going on for a long period of time. And that's the issue is we end up with chronic low-grade stealth inflammation in our system that chews up our organs, uh, chews up our, 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 you know, shuts down our mitochondrial function and uh, limits our ability to really thrive in life. You explained that so well. Thank you. So like you said, inflammation is a good thing if it's going to help our sprained ankles, something like that. But it's the chronic inflammation, the too high of inflammation that is the problem today. And these issues with inflammation, they contribute to a lot of health issues today. Like is inflammation the root cause a lot of a lot of these health issues? Oh, for sure. At, at the root of every chronic degenerative health condition is inflammation. So we've got to get inflammation under control. Again, you know, we've got to keep it balanced and our body really needs to get back into a healthy state of homeostasis. And so inflammation, again, is this marker that says, okay, your body feels like it's under threat right now. And we need to get it back into a kind of a peacetime physiology and not a wartime physiology. So if you are chronically inflamed, your body's in wartime physiology. And so we need to figure out what is driving that, what's triggering it, get that under control and bring it back into peacetime physiology where it can really focus on healing, repair, and optimal energy production. So I want to ask you some specifics about inflammation and things that contribute to it. You mentioned food and you mentioned gluten, but are there other specific foods that contribute to this inflammation? Yeah, for sure. So the main culprits are going to be grains in general. So grains have all different, gluten is more than just alpha gliadin, which is the, the most common uh, protein that's studied. Uh, when it when we look at gluten, there's a whole big family of of gluten molecules, and all of them have a similar effect where they open up the permeability in the gut. And so, I recommend a grain free diet. I think there are some people that can handle grains; they have more tolerance than others, so they get less inflamed. And uh, you know that's a big component when you're consuming food and making nutrition choices, understanding the level of threshold that you have for certain foods that are more pro inflammatory, like grains in general. So grains are a big one. And then of course, you know, all your processed sugars, starches, things like that, any sort of processed food. We have also got to look at seed oils. So corn oil, soybean oil, safflower, cotton seed, sesame, sunflower oil, uh, canola oil, all of those things are created by man, right? So they're highly refined. They're very, very fragile oils because they're highly polyunsaturated. 
and they really can't they 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 go rancid very very quickly and any exposure to light they go rancid and inside of our body they're very very fragile and so you know all of us have some level of oxidative stress so they go rancid inside of our body as well and they clog up our cell membranes they trigger uh inflammatory cell mediators we call those prostaglandins certain prostaglandins so they drive up inflammation in our system trans fats partially hydrogenated oils you know we see that on a on a label all of those things highly highly inflammatory so we want to avoid those and then you know the last kind of thing we want to consider as well is the amount of toxins on the food that we're consuming so the food may be something that is nutrient dense for example let's say you know a piece of broccoli or something like that but it may be it may have been doused in pesticides and herbicides and so if you've got a lot of these environmental chemicals on the food that you're consuming then that food is going to have a net toxic effect so ultimately you want to be thinking about you know the food choices you make sh you should be focusing on getting the maximal amount of nutrients and the minimal amount of toxins in order to do that the three most important rules, and we we can go beyond this, but this the three most important rules are number one, remove sugars and grains. Number two, get rid of bad fats, all those processed, refined oils that I talked about. Focus on good fats. Good fats are going to come th from things like grass-fed animal products, wild-caught seafood. Um, they're going to come from pasture-raised eggs. They're going to come from coconut oil, avocados extra virgin, fresh pressed, high polyphenol, extra virgin olive oil or olives uh, in general, all really good healthy fats that we want to be consuming. And then we want to do our best to change the meat that we eat. So instead of commercial raised uh, animal products, we want to try to get the grass fed, pasture raised animal products, wild caught fish, things like that. Because again, that's going to have a lot more nutrients when cows eat grass, for example, they have significantly higher levels of omega-3 fats, which are very anti-inflammatory. They have more conjugated linoleic acid, CLA, which helps reduce inflammation in the body. They have a lot more fat-soluble vitamin A. We call that retinol, um, which again, reduces inflammation in the system. They have more carnitine, carnosine, all these different powerful animal-based nutrients that they have. And they have lower levels of herbicides, pesticides and different chemicals in them, as well as inflammatory omega-6 fatty acids. And so we're trying to, again, steer towards the grass-fed, wild-caught animal products as well. It's really just turning to <clears throat> whole foods that are from nature that are nourishing our body is what it comes down to, rather than eating all of the processed oils, sugars, artificial foods that are out there. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay. So you had mentioned stress being a trigger for inflammation. Are there other lifestyle factors as well? Like does sleep play a role in inflammation? Yeah, sleep is a big factor. So sleep, when we're sleeping, we're releasing melatonin. Melatonin is the, our body, it's an endogenous, you know, we naturally produce it inside and it's the, the most important antioxidant for our mitochondria. So we hear a lot about, and you know, and and I even recommend certain supplements like glutathione and uh, vitamin C and N-acetylcysteine and things like that for antioxidants. But your body actually produces the most potent antioxidant to help clear out the mitochondria, and that's melatonin. Mitochondria are your energy-producing little factories within all your cells. 
they're also they also have a sensory component. And so their sensory component is looking at the environment and saying, is this environment conducive for me to produce a lot of energy or should I go into hibernation mode? Am I in wartime physiology or am I in peacetime physiology? That's kind of what the mitochondria are trying to sense. And so when we get enough melatonin to help sweep out oxidative stress and free radicals in the, in the mitochondria, the you know the mitochondria then say, okay, well, this is time for a peacetime physiology. I can really ramp up energy so I can really enjoy life and uh, do all the things that I desire to do at a high level. Um, I'm in a safe place. And so melatonin's key. Also, when we're sleeping, we also activate something called our glymphatic system. Glymphatic system is how we detoxify our brain, right? So every day, our brain is under a tremendous amount of stress, right? Even if you felt like you had a great day, there's still a lot of metabolic debris that builds up in the brain. When we sleep, we help drain the brain, right? So we drain out neurotransmitters, damaged uh, cellular debris, microbes, all different types of things. And so we're pulling all of that out and back into our lymphatic system where then we can kind of get that out through our uh, eliminatory channels in our body. And so if we don't sleep well, right, then we're not going to activate that lymphatic system. Or if we sleep in the wrong position, for example, you know, if we're sleeping, uh, if we're sleeping sitting up, like somebody might do if they're taking a red eye on, on a plane, we get a significantly reduced amount of glymphatic activation when we're doing that, as opposed to if we're sleeping in the fetal position, right? On our side, that's actually where we get the most glymphatic activation is when we're sleeping on our side, kind of that fetal position. Um, we're going to get the best glymphatic activation. Also, if you are sleeping and there's lights on in your room, right? Um, which a lot of people do. You'd be surprised how many people fall asleep with the TV, TV on, on, for yep. example. Yep. Yeah. And so when when we do that, we significantly reduce the amount of glymphatic activation, the overall melatonin release. And again, we want to maximize our melatonin release so we can clean out all the mitochondria and we want to maximize the glymphatic activation so we can clear out our brain. You're going to feel so much more refreshed and re-energized when you do that. When we don't do that, we're not able to sweep out the toxins and our mitochondria, we have a lot of free radicals uh, that are that are kind of left over and and reactive oxygen species that are left over in the mitochondria that are continually causing problems, right? And um, as we get more stress as the day goes on, so we wake up, we get more stress. It's almost like you know the the, the gas was left on, and so then something triggers it, and now boom, we get a whole cascade of oxidative damage to the mitochondria which chews up the mitochondria and tells the whole cell to, hey, shut down energy, right? Become more pro-oxidative. And, uh, you know, you're, you know, basically go into more of like a wartime physiology or even a hibernation mode, which you're going to feel, you're going to feel the effects of that. Just like all of us have whenever we um, have had a night of bad sleep, right? Yep. What do we feel? We feel like we got to take a nap. We feel uh, more irritable. We feel, we, we oftentimes have more anxiety, more depression, lower energy, right? All those types of things. And so, um, sleep is super critical for that process. Sleep is so important. I mean, for all those reasons you just said, and 1000 other reasons as well, you know, we can talk about detoxing and hormones and so many things about sleep and people underestimate the importance of sleep. So thank you for explaining that. Um, let me ask you one other thing about inflammation, because I hear both sides. 
exercise and inflammation. Some people will say, like, fight with me on it and say, oh, no, it lowers inflammation. And others, you know, or no, it raises inflammation. So explain that to me. Yeah. yeah so that that is one of the interesting things. So one of the most powerful things for our body, believe it or not, even though we talk about reducing stress, actually, we make our body stronger and more resilient when we undergo short bouts of stress, right? Actually, you know, if you just live in a bubble all day long, you actually get weaker and you atrophy. But when you go and you actually undergo short bouts, and that's the key is short bouts of stress, your body then can recover as long as you provide the right nutrients, you provide the right sleeping environment, resting environment, healthy environment in general, then your body's going to recover and it's going to become stronger and more, more resilient. So the actual act of exercise, particularly if you're exercising at a high intensity, like going out and taking a walk for most people, unless you're, you know, very, very uh, sedentary or, or, or just very, very, uh, you know, just elderly, maybe, you know, just in really, really bad metabolic health. The act of walking itself is not catabolic, right? It's very, very nourishing for our system, right? Lots of oxygen helps improve oxygenation, lymphatic function, helps stimulate positive neurotransmitters, but you're also not going to get really fit doing that. Um, and so, cause it's not enough of a stressor, but when you're working out at a high intensity, there's a massive inflammatory cascade that's going on in your system. So you're actually inflicting your body to, and that's why it hurts, right? You're inflicting, uh, your body to a level of suffering and a level of, uh, damage, right? Your, your cellular structures are becoming damaged, but it's only for a short period of time. And then as long as you provide the right nutrients, the right environment for healing, your body will become stronger and more resilient. Your endogenous, that means production within, your endogenous production of natural antioxidants goes significant. It, get, it gets elevated, right? Your natural production of glutathione within your system becomes elevated. Your ability to buffer oxidative stress in the mitochondria gets improved. Your body undergoes something called autophagy, which is basically called is, is basically cellular eating, right? And particularly, so what happens is when you have damaged cells, right? And, and particularly damaged organelles within the cells, like the mitochondria, your body can do one of two things, right? It can either let it sit there and continue to reproduce and create more damaged cells, or it can break down those damaged cells or those damaged organelles like the mitochondria, take the raw materials and produce healthy, more stress-resilient mitochondria. And that's really what we want. So we need to undergo this sort of autophagy, mitophagy process where we're breaking down the older damaged mitochondria and we're taking the raw materials and we're creating new, healthy, more stress resilient mitochondria. We're also going to create more mitochondria within our cells. And ultimately the quality of our life really is going to come down to, and we look at it on a cellular level, it's going to come down to the amount of healthy stress resilient, metabolically flexible mitochondria within the cells of your body. So the more healthy, stress-resilient, um, metabolically flexible mitochondria you have, and the less older damaged, what we call senescent or aged mitochondria, the healthier you're going to be. So exercise helps shift us from older damaged senescent mitochondria to young, healthy, metabolically flexible mitochondria. And therefore we notice a performance benefit. There's also a whole lot of other side benefits of exercise. It helps release certain hormones that, for example, testosterone growth hormone that make us feel really good. Believe it or not, testosterone 
for a man and a woman has greater effects on our brain than, you know, you would typically think of testosterone as like, hey, it helps us grow muscles, libido, things like that. And it is important for all of those things, but actually really, really important for healthy uh, brain function, for a positive mental attitude, for drive, for dopamine production in our brain. So we have drive and goals and, you know, that we have a life worth living in a sense. And so, um, so testosterone production goes up. We also release certain things like, uh, like our muscles will actually release these compounds called myokines and the myokines go up to the brain and they signal something called brain derived neurotropic factor, BDNF. BDNF is like miracle growth for the brain. It actually increases neuronal development or something we call neurogenesis. So development of new neurons, new, new brain cells and uh, synaptogenesis, which are the little gaps between the neurons. And the, the, the amount of healthy synapses in your brain is also a huge correlator with your ability to think sharply and quickly, your ability to have creativity, and your ability to adapt to mental and emotional stressors in your life. In fact, they looked at Einstein's brain at Stanford. So he donated his body to science when he passed away. And at Stanford, they studied his brain and they, they, their hypothesis was that he had more neurons for the size of the brain that, that he had compared to, you know, somebody else with a similar size brain. They were going to, they were thinking, well, there's going to be more neurons in there. What they found was that he had roughly the same amount of neurons, but he had twice as many synapses, these little gaps between the neurons. And what that allowed him was this greater flexibility of thought, right? So he had this incredible flexibility of thought. And he was able to link really complex ideas together. And that, of course, you know, was kind of the foundation for him to be able to come up with some incredible discoveries that have changed the world. And so the synapses, the, the depth and volume of synapses in your brain is going to allow you to have amazing breakthroughs mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually uh, in your life as well. And so one way that we help improve the overall uh, health of the synapses is through movement and exercise, right? And there are specific brain-related exercises too. For example, you know, when somebody gets pulled over with a DUI, right? What do they do? So they test actually a part of their brain called the cerebellum. And the cerebellum is really sensitive to alcohol, okay? And it's also sensitive to inflammation in general, right? A lot of people will develop something called cerebellar ataxia where they, you know, when they have brain inflammation where they just kind of stumble around. Um, but you can actually do exercises to support your cerebellum and your cerebellum has a huge, it's a huge influence of, um, proprioception or movement information into your cortex, right? So your, your frontal lobe and uh, the different parts of your uh, cerebral cortex that have to do with higher levels of thought. And so just doing like a heel to toe walk, for example, like they would test somebody who had a DUI, right? Actually challenges your cerebellum and ramps up more information up into your brain. So you can do specific exercises like that. You can do cross crawl exercises, um, which challenge both hemispheres of your brain for a higher level of thought and, and uh, you know, higher overall performance. So movement itself, to summarize all that, kind of went off on a tangent there, but uh, just exciting stuff. You know, I get passionate about this. The, the summarize it, the actual high intensity exercise is causing major inflammation in your body. However, if 
You don't overtrain, which is important, right? So you do it for a short period of time, and that can be different for each individual based on their metabolic flexibility, their underlying level of inflammation, the environment they're in, the nutrient levels they're in, right? But you do the right amount of training, and then you give your body the right amount of rest, okay, in a healthy environment, then you're going to get stronger and more stress resilient. Thank you so much. You honestly described things about exercise better than I've ever heard anyone explain it. So that was fabulous. Thank you. I could ask you so many questions about exercise and how much time and things like that, but we don't have five hours here on this podcast. So (laughs) I actually want to move on to a new topic and that is actually blood sugar levels because I've heard you talk about blood sugar levels with inflammation. So maybe we just start at the basics and tell the listeners like what you're talking about with blood sugar levels, why these are important and maybe how they affect inflammation. For sure. Well, the cells of your body, in particular, the mitochondria can run off of two main energy sources, glucose or sugar, right? And in our blood, we call it glucose, blood glucose, and then fatty acids, right? And there's another form of fatty acids that I'll, I'll come back to, and that's called ketones. And so those can be used for energy in our, in our system. And so our blood sugar, you know, we, we always need some blood sugar because again, our, our cells are using that for energy. Sugar, the disadvantage of using sugar is that it is a very uh, metabolically dirty fuel source. What that means is when we take energy or when we take glucose and we use it for energy, I should say the advantage first off is that it's very quick, right? We can produce energy quickly. We, it, we, it goes through this process called glycolysis and we can produce ATP, cellular energy quickly. And with, and we can also produce it without oxygen. We don't need the presence of oxygen in order to produce energy. So those are the advantages. The disadvantage is that it's metabolically dirty. And what that means is that when we use uh, glucose for fuel, we create a lot of free radicals and oxidative stress within the mitochondria. And again, just like going back to what I was talking about, this sort of oxidative stress can wear down the mitochondria, right? So it's able to handle some of it, but if we're continually creating this dirty energy source, we're going to wear down those mitochondria faster than if we have a cleaner energy source. Fatty acids, the the advantage of, of using fat for fuel is that we can produce a lot more energy than we can from glucose. And it's a lot cleaner, a lot less free radicals and metabolic stress on the mitochondria. The disadvantage is it takes longer and we need oxygen in order to do it, right? So there's advantages of both fuel sources. And at all times, our body is using a combination of both. However, at certain times, like for example, if we're exercising and you know you get out of breath right? you're doing some sort of anaerobic or exercise that doesn't depend on a continual supply of oxygen, then you're using primarily glucose as an energy source, as opposed to when you're sleeping, a health, somebody who's metabolically flexible and healthy, metabolic flexibility refers to this idea of being able to switch from burning sugar to burning fat and, and burning fat to burning sugar, depending on your environment. Somebody's metabolically flexible and metabolically healthy, they're going to primarily be burning fat while they're sleeping because we don't need as much energy produced and we have plenty of oxygen, right? Because we're breathing while we're sleeping. So at all times, we're trying to keep that blood sugar very, very stable. High blood sugar, we call that hyperglycemia, 
the blood sugar, the sugar molecules themselves will actually bind to proteins and they'll create something called an advanced glycation end product. So when blood sugar gets real high, let's say 150, something like that, these sugar molecules are binding to proteins, creating advanced glycation end products or AGEs, right? Advanced glycation end products, AGEs. These AGEs are very oxidative. They're pro-oxidative. So they create a lot of damage, particularly in the endothelial linings in our body. And so the main endothelial lining is the blood vessels, right? So the blood vessels become damaged. This is the main contributor. This along with infectious bacteria like streptococcus are the kind of the main triggers that cause damage to the endothelial lining of the blood vessels, right? And so they damage the blood vessels. And then of course the blood vessels have to try to heal themselves. So they'll create scar tissue. And if that process is repeated too often, we can develop plaques, plaque formation. So it's really important we keep our blood sugar down, but we don't want it to get too low because then we develop hypoglycemia. And most of us have probably experienced hypoglycemia. That's where you know you feel really, really dizzy, you um, you get hangry where you're hungry and you know angry at the same time. You're irritable. Um, you have cravings, things like that, and that's because your blood sugar has dropped too low, and the brain can't use fatty acids for energy. And this is really important to know. The brain really depends on glucose or this other molecule called ketones that I'm going to come back to in just a minute. But when blood glucose goes down too low, and our body is not good at creating ketones then we develop hypoglycemia. And when we're hypoglycemic, that actually means that the neurons are not getting the energy that they need and therefore they're actually dying. So we're actually creating a form of neuroexcitotoxicity. When one neuron dies, it doesn't just die all by itself. It dies and it releases uh, different activating compounds that then overstimulate the neurons next to them. And actually, almost like dominoes going down, it will actually create a massive flood of neuronal death. And so it's super important that we're keeping our blood sugar stable so we don't get this sort of neuronal death process that occurs when we're hypoglycemic. So very important we're keeping that blood sugar very, very balanced. And you know our innate intelligence, and really this is something that God put within us to help us deal with times of famine. Going back to kind of how I started earlier in the presentation, um, you know, our ancestors were exposed to times where they didn't have much food, right? So they would go, they had bad hunts, bad harvests. So that sometimes they would have to go days without food. Well, if you are so dependent on a continual supply of sugar in your bloodstream, then what do you do when you're fasting? Well, we have stored sugar, we call that glycogen, and so we have a certain amount of sugar that we store at all times, just in case we have to, you know, run for our lives, right? Or, or, or fight. So fight or flight, or if we go longer periods of time without food, then we need that stored amount of sugar, but we're going to need more energy than that. And that's why we have fat storage. So we have our own body fat and what happens? So when we go a longer period of time without food, and we can do this in today's day and age by doing what we call intermittent fasting. And, and compressing our eating window and having a longer fasting window on a regular basis, our insulin levels, and insulin is this hormone that comes out into the bloodstream when our blood sugar gets high and takes the sugar molecules and puts them into the cells. It helps prevent against the formation of those advanced glycation end products. 
and get sugar as well as other nutrients like magnesium into the cell so they can be used for energy. Well, insulin is key, but we need to keep our, our cells very insulin sensitive. And then when we go through a fast or a time of famine, insulin levels drop. When they drop down below a certain threshold, the body says, okay, now I need to start producing these ketones. Ketones, the reason why fatty acids can't get into the brain and the brain can't use fatty acids for energy is that the blood brain barrier protects against large molecules getting into the brain. So it wants to prevent against infectious bacteria, different toxins from getting into the brain and fatty acids are not able to get in as well. So our liver will actually take fatty acids, convert them into this smaller water-soluble molecule called ketones. And ketones are able to cross the blood-brain barrier, get into the brain, and be used as an energy source. But we're not going to produce ketones endogenously, meaning producing within, unless our insulin levels get very low. And we do that through, again, periods of time when we're not eating, or if we're very metabolically sensitive, we might be able to do it if we're exercising or if... Um, you're, we're on a very low carb diet and they call that a ketogenic diet. Um, and that the goal of that diet is keep insulin down. So you're eating food. It's almost like you're mimicking the effects of fasting, but you're instead you're eating, but you're just not eating foods that are insulogenic that produce a large release of insulin. And therefore insulin stays low and our body starts producing these ketones, which are a fuel source for the brain. They're also a trigger for the mitochondria to reproduce and to go through, go undergo mitophagy and break down older damaged mitochondria and create new healthy stress resilient mitochondria and more of them, right? So they actually help signal that. And uh, they also are epigenetic influencers, ketones in the brain. And so they actually help influence our, our genetic expression to be more stress resilient in general. Because again, our, our innate intelligence associates ketones in the blood with a time of famine. And when you're undergoing, you know, when our ancestors were undergoing a time of famine, they actually needed to have heightened senses and more, in a sense, more strength and energy because they needed to go out and hunt and they needed to have, you know, they needed to get a kill, right? Or, or a great harvest in order to survive. So we actually get stronger and we get more stress resilient and we're able to perform at a higher level with the presence of those ketones. And so the way that we can do that now is kind of mimicking uh, either eating foods that are not, you know, are not going to release a lot of insulin or undergoing times of famine, such as when we do intermittent fasting to get the ketones elevated in our system and to get those performance and anti-inflammatory benefits from them. Okay. So I have a lot of questions for you about this. So a lot of people's blood sugar levels are constantly going up and down and up and down because they're eating an apple or a piece of bread. And then, you know, they're eating these carbs and spiking it and lowering it. So when someone is starting out wanting to do intermittent fasting or wanting to balance their blood sugar levels, where do they start? Do they just jump into intermittent fasting or do they work on eating like a protein with a carb or a fat with a carb? Like where does someone start? Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a really good note because a lot of people are eating eight times a day. They don't think they are, but every time they drink, you know, a drink of sweet tea or take a bite of an apple, they're getting an insulin release. So the first big thing is I would definitely recommend prioritizing protein in your meals. And so when you're going to consume calories, any form of calories, even liquid calories, you should consume somewhere around 20 to, you know, really ideally 30 grams of protein 
at least 30 grams of protein in that meal. So instead of snacking, actually have real meals and have at least 30 grams of protein in that meal. And if you're more active, you have more lean body tissue. If you have a higher appetite, you might need more, 40, 50 grams or so. Protein is very satiating, right? And um, it helps stimulate muscle protein synthesis in your system. And so 30 grams is kind of roughly the the measure to where you're going to get roughly around three grams of a branch chain amino acid called leucine. And that's going to help stimulate that protein muscle synthesis or muscle protein synthesis in your system. So that's what you want to do. And then I recommend getting around 20 to 30 grams or so of healthy fats. Again, we talked about olive oil, avocado, grass-fed butter, eggs, things like that for good fat sources, right? And so the fat and the protein are going to really satiate you. And then you can fill your plate up with colorful fruits and vegetables, right? And I think that's great. That provides fiber, polyphenols, um, structured water that you get in fruits and vegetables, fantastic for hydrating your cells. So a lot of really good benefits there, but make sure you have your, your protein and your fats dialed in. And then that's going to create a sense of satiation where you are not going to get this big insulin release you're going to keep your blood sugar more stable and you're going to have more leptin sensitivity. And leptin is a hormone released from our fat cells that goes up into our hypothalamus and signals that we are satiated or we are satisfied with the food that we consumed and to turn on uh, fat burning, right? And so if we have poor leptin sensitivity, oftentimes we'll overeat, we'll have constant cravings. And so, and then of course that can cause hyperglycemia, it can cause blood sugar dysregulation. So the protein and the fat, focusing on that first, and then having the fruits and vegetables as more of a kind of a, a side, you know, or, I mean, it's, it can take up a good size of our plate if, if we want it to, but it should be not necessarily the first thing we think about when we're creating our meal. We want to prioritize the protein and fats. And then I recommend consuming three meals a day, right? So in the beginning, you just consume three meals a day. And I recommend doing at least a 12-hour overnight fast. It's always a good idea. You're going to sleep better if you stop eating roughly three to four hours before you go to bed. And again, having a really good blood sugar stabilizing meal. So instead of having like a big bowl of spaghetti, right, which is mostly carbohydrates, instead it would be a lot better to have something like steak with asparagus and, you know, the steak asparagus and let's say a side salad with maybe tomatoes in it. And, uh, you know, for dessert, maybe you have some berries, right? Or something like that. So that would be a significantly better, more blood sugar stabilizing meal than having, you know, the spaghetti, right? And then when your blood sugar is stable, you're going to sleep better. You're not going to have the cravings uh, overnight or the cravings late at night to consume more food. You're going to sleep better and uh, you're going to wake up more refreshed and more satiated. And a lot of people will say, well, I wake up, I'm super hungry first thing in the morning. And I always recommend drinking at least eight to 16 ounces of water before you even think about food. And so we have this kind of, we have this hunger hormone called ghrelin that's released from our stomach whenever the stomach walls are not distended. So like if there's nothing in our stomach, we're going to release ghrelin. Ghrelin is our hunger hormone. Ghrelin is also released at periods of time when we're used to eating. So if we eat dinner at six o'clock every night, you can expect ghrelin to be released, giving you this sense of I'm hungry. If you eat breakfast at 6 a.m., 7 a.m. every morning, you should expect to kind of feel some hunger, hunger sensations. And that's that ghrelin. 
But when you drink water, it it distends your stomach. It hydrates you. All of us are dehydrated when we first wake up in the morning because we're breathing out water vapor all night long. So we need to hydrate our body. And then it distends the stomach. It inhibits ghrelin release and we don't feel the same level of hunger. And that can allow us to kind of condense our eating windows. So that oftentimes can allow people to go easily an hour or two hours in the morning without feeling hungry and needing to eat. And so you want to give yourself at least 12 hours between your last meal and your first meal the next day, and ideally 14 hours, and then eat your meals in, let's say, like a 10-hour eating window throughout the day. So that would be like 9 a.m. to 7 p.m., for example. And that's kind of a good day-to-day strategy. And then as you get more metabolically flexible and better at burning fat for fuel, you may notice that it's a lot easier to actually go longer periods of time without eating. And then you may do a 16-hour fast or an 18-hour fast and eat two meals, maybe two or three meals uh, you know, in a six or eight-hour eating window. And you, t- you notice that you feel significantly better when you do that. And as you kind of extend that eating window or the the fasting window, your body produces more growth hormone. And growth hormone is a quintessential anti-aging hormone. It helps you burn fat, build muscle. So it creates more of an environment that's conducive. It helps protect lean body tissue. And also if you stack exercise with it, it can provide an environment to build more lean body tissue and to get stronger. It's also really great for your bones. It helps preserve bone mass. It also is fantastic for your immune system. So it helps stimulate healthy immunity and reduces inflammation in your system. And it's also great for your skin, the collagen in your your joints, as well as your skin. A lot of people notice as they start doing intermittent fasting that their skin just seems softer, right? And better and less inflamed. And that's exactly what's happening. It's reducing inflammation. It's improving the elasticity, the collagen structure of the skin because of that human growth hormone. And of course, we also start to activate some autophagy where we're breaking down older damaged cells, particularly, you know, like when we're talking about our skin in our skin. Um, and those older damaged cells can create age spots and wrinkles and things like that in our skin. So stimulating skin autophagy is one of the many benefits of blood sugar stabilizing, stabilizing your blood sugar, and then practicing intermittent fasting like that. So that's usually how you do it. And I recommend being intuitive with it, really trying to listen to your body but also trying to link any sort of undesirable messages that your body may give you, like cravings, for example, to perhaps the food that you consumed the, the day before or the morning of or whatever it was. Perhaps you know, you're having cravings because you haven't hydrated well, right? Um, you, you don't have enough salts in your diet. I mean, there's a whole number of reasons. When you go on a lower carb diet and start fasting, for example, your insulin levels lower and you start to excrete more sodium. When you excrete more sodium, you excrete more water with it and you actually need a little bit more sodium, right? You need more salts. And so in our society, people have heard forever, be on a low salt diet, right? Salt raises your blood pressure. And so a lot of times when people start to practice these healthy principles, they avoid salt. They avoid foods that are higher in natural sodium. You actually need more as you're Uh, doing this sort of strategy. So actually just taking a little bit of salt and some water oftentimes, it's one of the best things you can do to knock out cravings, to help improve energy, mental clarity uh, throughout the day. And it's just a really simple, easy solution. Okay. So I have so many questions for you, but I'll just ask one. 
in the health world, you hear a lot of controversial stuff about intermittent fasting. And one of them is women don't do it for too long of a time period because it messes with your hormones. So is that people that just haven't started out at like 12 hours, then 13 hours and 14 hours, they've just jumped right into an 18 or 20 hour fast? Or how do you explain that? Yeah, I think there it's actually a good precaution because certainly some women can have problems with this. And particularly there's the demographic that has the biggest issue with intermittent fasting is going to be young menstruating females that are also very busy. Maybe they're a mom, maybe they have a full-time job, a career, and they're very stressed. And also oftentimes they're also exercising. So they're putting a lot of stressors on their system. And fasting, even though it's really healthy, it's actually a stressor on our system. Particularly if you're just getting started with it, it's it can be stressful because your body still has to keep your blood sugar elevated. And so with that demographic, there's a couple of things that we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll do, for example, like a 14-hour kind of daily fast, I think is really good. Eating, eating the meals in a 10-hour eating window, um, as long as they're really focusing on getting those macros right with the protein and the fats, can be really, really supportive. And then the week before they have their menstrual cycle, so that's the latter part of what we call the luteal phase of the cycle, your body needs a lot of progesterone progesterone can be inhibited by too much production of cortisol. Cortisol is your body's glucocorticoid, meaning that its job is to raise your blood sugar. And so when you're fasting, you're going to release more cortisol because you don't have a source of sugar coming in. So your body needs to keep that blood sugar elevated so you don't get hypoglycemia. So it releases more cortisol. And so if women are under a lot of stressors, you know, they have a lot of stressors going on and they're also fasting, that perhaps for for you know this particular woman could be too much too much stress and reduce the amount of progesterone that they release which can then cause a lot of the pms like symptoms when you don't get enough progesterone release um women tend to have you know worse time right more symptoms cramping uh irritability bloating right things like that as they go into their menstrual cycle so that last week it's really important that in a sense, they're telling their body, hey, food is abundant, right? Food is abundant here. So that's going to make that that individual, their body feel like, okay, now I'm in a more, a time that's better for fertility, right? So think about it from the ancestral perspective. When we were in a time of famine, it wasn't a good time to be fertile. It was a good time to go out and hunt and find food, right? Not be fertile. And so when we're in a time of abundance, right? When food is around and food is plentiful, that's a good time to be fertile and reproduce. So we want to give the body this signal that we're in a time of, of food abundance, particularly that last week, and then also right around ovulation. So ovulation is day 14, typically on a typical cycle. So somewhere on day 12 to day 15 or so, it's good to cycle in more carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are going to release more insulin. Insulin is kind of the signal that says, hey, we're in a time of food abundance right now. So we're in a time where we can store fat, where we can you know, divide and, and reproduce cells, right? And also carry out a baby. But at the same time, we don't want to get insulin resistant. And we actually want to kind of cycle through periods of and get the autophagy and the mitophagy benefits and the anti-inflammatory benefits of the ketones. So how do we do that? The best times for a woman to do that, to maybe do a little bit more deeper fasting, and also maybe a lower carb diet would be 
once menstruation starts, roughly the first 10 days or so um, after menstruation hits, great time to do that. And also shortly after ovulation. So roughly day 16, day 17, up until you know about day 21. Is those are great times to do more, to do deeper intermittent fasting, or if somebody wanted to do like a three or four or five day fast, or if they want to do a, a very low carb diet, those would be the best times. So it really has to do with feast, famine, cycling, and doing that right around that menstrual cycle. And then for women that are in menopause, with menopausal women, they already have a lower production of estrogen and progesterone. So the body is always going to prioritize survival over reproduction. And of course, when a, a woman's in menopause, they're not producing enough estrogen and progesterone for reproduction. That applies more to the menstrual cycle woman that's in her fertility seasons. But estrogen and progesterone also play an important role with really just your overall thriving, right? They're going to help you feel better, right? And they're going to help with you know better skin quality, better hair quality, right? And a lot of different factors like that, libido. So the body's always going to prioritize survival over your your kind of day-to-day, uh, -day, um, how you look and feel, right? And so if you're under a lot of stress and then you're also tacking in intermittent fasting, it may be too much stress for your system. So kind of like exercise, you have to look at fasting the same way. You can exercise the right amount and get incredible health benefits. But you, if you exercise too much, you overtrain, overwhelm your system, you become more catabolic and more inflamed. Well, it's kind of the same thing with fasting. If you do too much fasting, your body's not going to adapt effectively to it. And you're going to have a lower amount of estrogen progesterone. And you could, your hair might fall out. You might not be able to lose weight, right? You might end up you know, feeling mentally sluggish and, and lethargic and have a lot of different issues. So you got to use it as a lever to get the, the advantages that you want and not overdo it. So for most women that are in menopause, as long as they're keeping stress under control, they're really prioritizing sleep, they're eating a blood sugar stabilizing diet, they can often do a 16 or 18 hour fast and do it on a regular basis on a day-to-day -day basis. But you may encounter a season where stressors are high and it's harder to keep your blood sugar stable. And therefore you may need you know, to, to reduce that fasting window. Now, the interesting thing is that the better you get at doing something like intermittent fasting, the more stress resilient your body becomes. So when you do encounter a stressor, you get better at getting back into homeostasis because that's really what the idea of resilience is. Resilience is this idea where you know, we want to be in homeostasis or balance, but our environment, triggers in our, in our environment create stress that pulls us out of homeostasis Resilience is kind of the gap between where our homeostatic balance is, where we are when we're adapting to stress, and then how quickly we get back to homeostasis. And so you actually build more resilience in your cells and in your physiology when you are practicing having a, some sort of regular intermittent fasting practice. However, again, there may be certain seasons where you just have to reduce it a little bit here and there because of the amount of stress. I'll give you a, a, a quick example. I have seven-year-old twin boys. And so back when my wife and I had had our our, our boys, um, and I have four, four young children overall, but when we had the boys, I mean, that was just so intense and I had never encountered the level of sleep deprivation that I encountered yeah. when I went through that. And so I was working... You know, I was working a lot of hours at the time. I was also exercising six days a week, intermittent fasting every day. 
and I just hit the wall, right? And I, you know, I, I just felt inflamed all the time. I just didn't feel good because I wasn't getting the recovery sleep that I needed to. So I actually needed less exercise. I needed to cut down exercise. I needed to reduce my fasting window or, you know, basically open up my eating window a little bit more um, and prioritize more rest in my life and work less. Right. And so, because I wasn't getting the recovery sleep that I needed. So depending on the season that you're in, you need to tailor um, your fasting, your exercise, right. Um, And things like that. So you are kind of getting the right amount, the right dosage, right. To, to get you the performance benefits and not overwhelming your system. I'm so glad you said all of that because it really comes down to knowing your body and what your body needs. Because same sort of example, a couple of years ago, I was going through a stressful time in our life and I was working with a doctor just saying, I don't feel good. All of a sudden I'm putting on weight and tired all the time and this isn't normal. And anyways, my inflammation markers were really high due to stress, things like that. And I was intermittent fasting as well. And he was like, no, you've got to like only do a 12 hour fast for right now until we can calm down this inflammation and get your cortisol levels better and things like that. And so it really does come down to knowing your body and then listening to these influencers, just not accepting it as, oh, I must do 20 hours fasting. No, that's good for some people maybe, but maybe it's not good for you. So it's understanding that influencers are just maybe preaching a few things yeah. that, but you need yeah. to understand it may be good for one and not for the other and to understand yeah. your own health. Yeah. Or, or it may not be good for you right now in this season. Right. Or it may be good for you right now in this season, but not good for you in a future season. Right. And Correct. so, or yeah. yeah, exactly. Or let's build up to that. Maybe it yeah. will be good after you practice a 12 hour for a while and then a 14 yeah. hour. I could ask you so many questions about all of this, more on inflammation and hormones and intermittent fasting, but we've come to our hour. So what last bits of advice can you give the listeners as to maybe where to start or what's best for them? For sure. Well, you know, I would, I would certainly try to listen to your body. I mean, that's the key dial in your nutrition, make sure you're getting movement on a regular basis. Make sure you're getting sun exposure. I was another, it's another positive hormetic stressor. That's so powerful for your body that uh, I didn't recommend, you know, that I didn't talk about so far, but uh, it's one of the best stimulus for your mitochondria. And I, I say that as I'm looking out, we just had like three or four dark dreary days in a row. And now the sun's out and I'm like, oh man, I need to get outside. So, um, so regular sun exposure is so powerful. These are small, easy things that you can be doing. Um, getting out, grounding your body on grass, dirt, sand, getting your, your bare feet on the ground it has a healthy electromagnetic frequency that comes from the earth that our ancestors were constantly connected with that in our society today, because we were rubber soles, we stay inside. When we go outside, we're wearing rubber soles in our shoes that blocks that natural electromagnetic frequency. And then we're exposed to computers, cell phones, TVs, all these different artificial man-made electromagnetic frequencies that are our DNA, our, 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 our genetic structure has not had a chance to adapt to effectively in their stressors on our system. So simple, easy things that we can be doing really also focusing on good breathing habits is so important as well. I dialing in your sleep. I mean, these are all things that you could be doing and working on, on a regular basis. And I know I got a lot of great resources on my website. If you're interested in, you know, learning how to sleep better and things like that. So you can check that out, but, um, yeah, that's, that's really the, the best place to start. Thank you. You really are a huge wealth of knowledge. You know so much stuff. So tell my listeners again where they can find all of these amazing resources you have. 
For sure. You can go to my website, drjockers.com. Also, I have a, a podcast as well, Dr. Jockers Functional Nutrition Podcast, where I'm having conversations like this all the time. So you can check that out as well. And you also have some books as well. Yeah. Yep. So I have an in-depth book on, uh, it's my advanced nutrition and recipe book. It's the Keto Metabolic Breakthrough. And then I have, you know, the best book out there on fasting. It's called The Fasting Transformation. So you can check both of those out. They're on amazon.com. Perfect. Okay. I always end my podcast by asking my guests what they have found to be the best ingredient in life. What would you say it is? Best ingredient in life. That's an interesting question. You know, um, as I'm looking out at the sun, I mean, I, I would say that's that getting regular sun exposure is one of the best things that has really helped transform my life. I remember growing up, my parents, we lived up in the Northeast in uh, New York, Pennsylvania for the first 14 years of my life. And I remember being depressed a lot. I remember just never really feeling good, just getting sick all the time. And then we moved to Florida. When I was when I started high school, my dad got a job down there. We moved down to Florida. I was out in the sun. I was we lived very close to the beach. I was on the beach a lot, and I was just exposed to the earth more, right? And getting more sun exposure, and it was like my mood, everything about me changed. And uh, so, just getting that regular sun exposure, one of the best ingredients for your life. So, I would definitely recommend that. I love that. Yeah, I tell people all the time, the sun is the best supplement there is out there. And so not enough of us take advantage of the sunlight and all of the amazing benefits of it. So thank you for saying that. And thank you so much again for being here, for taking the time. I know you are extremely busy with everything that you do. And listeners, go follow him on social media, listen to his podcast. Like I said, I have personally learned so much from him and I know you listeners will too. So again, thank you, Dr. Jockers. Thanks, Carolyn. Appreciate you. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to subscribe to the Just Ingredients podcast to learn more about your health and good ingredients to life. Plus, get daily tips at just.ingredients on Instagram.